All right. Good morning. Good to know that like Pavlog's dogs, I've trained you. When I say good morning, you abound in good morning. Well done, well done. All right, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis is where we're going to be this morning, uh, chapter 29. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 29. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, there are a few Bibles kind of scattered in front of you. And you're most welcome to take one of those. Uh, Genesis 29 is on page 23, actually, in your NIV Pew Bible. If you don't have access to either of those, uh, the majority of the text should be on the screen. We have been in the midst of our summer series called The Idol Factory. Uh, and by way of review, uh, we have been talking about idolatry. And uh, to make a long story short, we were made to worship God. We should worship Him and Him alone. But instead, in our fallen nature, we substitute worshiping God for worshiping people and things and all sorts of uh, things that are not God, and we commit idolatry. We see in the Old Testament that idolatry oftentimes is, is associated with physically bowing down to some kind of uh, foreign or pagan deity, but in the, both the Old and the New Testament, we see that idolatry is uh, extended far beyond just kneeling to some object, but it involves things like greed and lust and all sorts of other things that we place our trust in, that we seek uh, and want more than God, and that we obey above. God. And so that's where we have been. You, as you can see, we've talked about several different potential idols. And this morning, uh, we come to the idol of romance, the idol of romance out of Genesis 29. So let's do this. Uh, I think we're all ready to go. Let's pray one more time and uh, ask God's Spirit to come and to, to move among us, and then we'll get started. Father, again, we are so grateful to be here this morning. It's good to gather in the name of Jesus and to serve Him and to love Him and to sing with joy and gusto um, to Him. And it's good to have the Holy Spirit stir us up with passion and desire for you. Spirit, we ask again that you would come, that you would guard my lips, help me to say things that are right and true and accurate, and I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, lips that would be willing uh, to speak truthfully. Uh, We don't want to come and just hear a performance. Uh, We don't just want to come and do our duty, but we desire that you be in the process process of exposing the idols in our life because there are many things that we bow down to other than you, and there are many things that we want other than you, and there are many uh, people that we obey other than you, and there are many other saviors that we pursue other than you. And so, Father, help us. Help us to have open eyes to see the idols in our life so that then we could replace those idols with someone greater, more satisfying, more fulfilling, uh, more joyous, and more holy, and that is you. And so help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I would suggest to you that the struggle that humanity has with this particular idol, uh, I've entitled it the idol of romance, uh, goes back several thousands of years uh, uh, to the time of uh, Jacob and Leah, which is where we're going to be in Genesis 23. But uh, in most recent uh, times, uh, we see all sorts of popular cultural ideas being manifested about this particular idol, the idol of romance. And I think every generation struggles with this and expresses itself in a different way. And so I would uh, first suggest to you a 1965 song. Um, I'm not really up to date on 1965 songs, uh, and I'd never heard of this song before, but maybe you have. 
Um, and it's a Dean Martin song. A Dean Martin song, 1965, and it's entitled this, You're Nobody Until Somebody Loves You. Have you ever, anybody heard of that song before? Wonderful. I'm new here. Uh, you're nobody <laughs> until somebody loves you. But here, here is the first verse, uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. He says in this song, You're nobody until somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You may be king, you may possess the world and its gold, but gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world still is the same, you never change it, as sure as the stars shine above. You're nobody till somebody loves you, so find yourself somebody to love. Now, maybe many of you could sing that and know the tune. I don't know the tune, um, uh, but I find it interesting because in 1965, uh, there is the idea that you are nobody until somebody loves you. I think in maybe a more modern example of this is found in the movie Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, but the long and short of it is it's a movie uh, with a Tom, not Tom Hanks, uh, Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, I believe. And the plot is basically this. He is a sports agent and he uh, is a, a you know, works for professional athletes. He works at a big firm. He leaves the firm. He starts his own little fledgling uh, sports agency business. He has one client, one football uh, star to represent. And in the midst of it, he takes his secretary with him and they uh, get into a romantic relationship. They end up getting married and uh, after that. And then they hit tough times. Things begin to fall apart. There's a separation that happens. And then the scene that we're about to see is towards the end of the movie. And towards the end of the movie, Jerry Maguire kind of has his big break. His football guy, the one client he has, makes a big scene at a football game. There's all sorts of positive attention towards his client and towards Jerry Maguire's agency. And everything is finally falling into place. Everything is good. Life is as it should be in Jerry's mind, except for one thing. And that's his relationship with his wife. And so we see this scene, and this is kind of uh, towards the end, and it's a makeup scene. It's where they finally come together. And notice, notice these maybe famous or infamous words uh, from the lips of uh, Jerry Maguire. We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. I love you. You? Complete me. I want just... Yes. Just shut You had me at hello. This is the best small group ever. (laughs) So in the modern day, we have the idea that without someone to love, without someone that you're in a romantic relationship with, that you are somehow a number one, according to Dean Martin, you are nobody. Or number two, according to Jerry Maguire, you are incomplete. You are not a whole person without 
romance. And this is so uh, extremely prevalent in our culture. But what I hope that we can see is as we turn to Genesis 29 this morning, uh, we're going to find out that this was not, this is not just something that we struggle with here in uh, modern day, but this is something that people have struggled with dating back centuries. And so we're going to see this story from Genesis 29 about a particular uh, guy and a gal, and his name is Jacob. So if you're familiar with a biblical story, you're familiar with Jacob. And then also a gal by the name of Leah. And what we're going to see hopefully this morning is that Jacob and Leah struggle both with the idol of romance, but they struggle with it, in my opinion, in different ways. Uh, As Jacob struggles with it, uh, what I would call the physical side or the physical idol of romance. That is, he struggles with finding meaning through sexuality and intimacy. But on the flip side, we're going to see Leah, and she's going to struggle with what I would call the relational side of this I, of this idol, the idol of romance, that is finding meaning in being in a relationship, being loved. And so first of all, we're going to see Jacob, uh, the physical idol of romance. And let's pick up the story in verse 15, is where we're going to pick up the story, chapter 29, in verse 15. Uh, but b- before we do that, before we read verses 15 through 30, I want to give you just a bit of a background as to the story, uh, what's happened thus far. Um, as we go backwards in Genesis, we see God coming to a man by the name of Abram, soon to be Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless your socks off. Through your seed, through subsequent generations, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent, and I'm going to bring a redeemer ultimately to fix this mess that humanity has got itself into. And so in every every subsequent generation from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, this promise of a coming Messiah runs. And what we find out is that the promise went from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob. Now that's a bit interesting because what we find out is that Jacob is a twin. Jacob has a twin by the name of Esau, and Esau is the older, if you remember the story. Esau was born for first and then Jacob, and the way that it usually worked in that culture was that that blessing, you would think, that promise would run through the older, but God said through prophecy, not so. Uh, the promise is going to go to the younger, to Jacob. And so what we have is uh, strife being had in this household because what we find out is that Isaac loved uh, Esau more. He was the firstborn. Isaac favored Esau. But then what we find out is that Isaac's wife favored Jacob. And so there are divided allegiances in this household. What we find out is that, first of all, Jacob, his name it means deceiver. And he is uh, of less than reputable character. What we find out is, first of all, he swindles uh, the family inheritance from his brother. And then secondly, he fakes his being his brother, he dresses up like his brother and he fe- he stealed, in a sense, the family blessing from Esau by pretending to be Esau, going before his feeble, ailing, almost blind father, pretending to be like his brother, pulling the old switcheroo and deceiving his father into giving him the blessing. Well, as you can imagine, as the story goes... Esau didn't take that very likely. He, he was he was displeased. And so he says, I'm going to kill my brother. And so the mom says, uh, Jacob, you better go. <laughs> Time to go. Why don't you go to this place called Haran, which is where I'm from, and find my, un- uh, find my brother, your uncle, by the name of Laban. And so as the story goes into chapter 29, this is what is going on. Jacob is running for his life. He's looking for this homeland. And he comes to a well, and he asks the, this is the shortened version, and he asks the shepherds there, hey, 
Do you know my uncle? They say, yes. And then in comes this woman by the name of Rachel. She comes. He goes to find out that she is related to him. There's happiness. There's joy. They go back to Laban's house, and he begins to work for his uncle, Laban, as a shepherd. So that's where the story picks up. He's working for his uncle as a shepherd. He's met Rachel, which we're going to find out how he feels about her in just a second. And he, he, but there's no wages. There's no formality to it. So Laban comes and he says, Hey, you shouldn't work for free. What, what are your wages? What should I pay you? This is what he says. Let's look together in verse 15 and we're going to read 15 through 15 through 30. Verse 15, Laban said to him, just because you are, are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I uh, give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, uh, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her. Verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came... Oh, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant, his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Isn't that just an interesting way to put it? When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his servant Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. This is indeed God's word. And so we begin with the story of Jacob. We begin with the story of Jacob and what I call the physical idol of romance. Let me uh, simply make a few observations here. It's, it's, my, uh, it's my contention that what we see is that Jacob is overwhelmed with uh, physical desire for this woman. And that becomes his primary purpose of living. That becomes what he is consumed by. And so let me, uh, let me just point out a few things that he was so smitten by her physical attractiveness alone. Just by her looks. Several clues, just several observations. Number one, first of all, Rachel's beauty is highlighted or compared with Leah's. Look with me again in verse 17. This is an intentional comparison between the two. Verse 17 says this again. Uh, I'll flip backwards. Verse 17. 
It said that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so there's an com- intentional comparison here. Uh, it's kind of hard to exactly understand what's going on. But first of all, notice what it says about Rachel, that she was pretty in form and beautiful. Pretty in form and beautiful. When you look at the Hebrew, the first one talks about her figure. That is her body. The second one talks about her face. And so what the author is trying to tell us here is that Rachel was just a knockout. She was physically attractive. She, her, her, her face was just beautiful. And so the author used double, two words to describe her physical attractiveness. But then she compares Rachel with Leah, who's the older one. And notice what it says. It says that she had weak eyes. Now, I read that the first time, as you probably did, and you're like, what? <laughs> what is the author trying to say? You know, first of all, what he's not saying is that Rachel had really good eyesight and that she could see far away and that Leah needed glasses. That's not the comparison that's being made here. It's a, it's a comparison of beauty. And so what this likely means is uh, a couple things. Number one, in that culture, fiery eyes were seen as attractive to where kind of duller eyes were seen as unattractive. So it could be referring to that. It may just be a Hebrew idiom for the fact that she was not as attractive as her sister. Uh, either way, we get the point of the, com- of the comparison. We see that Rachel's beauty is highlighted, Leah's lack thereof, and at least in Jacob's eyes, is, is highlighted. Second thing that we see from the text that points us in this direction is, uh, secondly, it's something that's not said, but it's something that is left out. Oftentimes what is not said is just as important as what is said. And what we don't find out about Rachel is anything about her character, anything about her morality, anything about if Jacob is attracted to anything other than the fact that she seems to be uh, uh, pretty uh, attractive. And so what we see, though, is when you read the rest of the story, you come to see that Rachel's character is really lacking. I mean, there's real deficiency in her character. So as you read the rest of the story, first of all, you're going to find out that she's going to be driven by jealousy. She's going to be driven by jealousy. And what happens is Jacob marries both of the daughters, but Leah begins to have babies, and Rachel cannot have babies, and she is so overwhelmed by jealousy that her sister is conceiving, and she's not, that she says, hey, maidservant, why don't you, why don't you uh, hook up with my husband, and you can kind of be a surrogate mom, and that way I can have kids through you. Bad idea, right? Bad idea. Secondly, um, what she does is she steals her father's household idols. If you continue to read, Jacob is leaving, and we come to discover that Rachel somehow wanted these household idols. She steals them, she flees with her husband, and then her dad comes back and is like, where are my idols? And then she lies to her dad about stealing the idols. That's like a double-dip bad thing, right? In fact, interestingly enough, this is the first reference to idolatry, if I'm not mistaken, in the whole Bible. In the whole Bible. And it's attributed to Rachel. And so the point that I want to make is not only is her beauty highlighted, but her character is not highlighted. There's a deficiency there. Number three, the third thing we see from the text is uh, is that Jacob was willing to pay a hefty amount to receive his bride. Now, this is very different uh, than in our culture. In that culture, they had something that we would call a dowry. And so there was a guy, he says, this is the wife that I want to get. And he would come up with a sum of money and give it to the father in exchange for essentially being able to marry his daughter. And so daughters in those days, uh, some dads could see them as kind of a money-making opportunity, if you will. And so notice 
Notice what Jacob is willing to to pay, if you will, for the opportunity to marry Rachel. He was so smitten by her that it says that he offered seven years, seven years worth of labor, worth of wages that could be paid in exchange for this opportunity. Now, if you didn't know anything about that culture, you'd think, well, seven years is a long time to wait. I mean, like a seven-year engagement, that's, that's a long time. But what is going on here is that the long story short is that he was offering four times the normal dowry. So let's just say the normal dowry was 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver. He was offering four times that. This was a huge offer. What Jacob was offering to Laban was the kind of offer that he could not refuse. He was so smitten by her that he offered this amount and said, you would be crazy, Uncle Laban, to not take this offer. Secondly, we see uh, uh, not only that, but we see that Jacob's comments both um, being made about him and being made by him. Let me point specifically to the comments that Jacob made. This is kind of a third clue that we get, that he was so smitten by her physical attractiveness and he was so overwhelmed by his physical desire for her. Notice what he says at the end of the seven years. <clears throat> Verse 21. He comes to his father-in-law. Just imagine, imagine this. Place, place yourself in the father-in-law's role, if you will, right? He comes to you and he says this, my time is complete. I want to lie with her. Some translations vary, but you get the point of what he's saying. Now, in, if you do some study, what you'll find out is, is that Jewish scholars look at this and they're like, I can't believe he said that. (laughs) They're like, I can't believe that he had the crassness. I can't believe that he had the indiscretion to be able to come to his father-in-law and say this. This was not normal. This was out of the custom, if you will. And so all of these things, these three things, I think, point out the fact, the simple fact that he was crazy in love with her. He would not take no for an answer. In fact, one commentator says that he was so emotionally and sexually overwhelmed with longing. That's the picture that we get of Jacob as he struggled, I think, with this physical idol of romance. Pastor Richard Strauss, I think, hits it on the head when he says this. Jacob was so fascinated by Rachel's beauty and so enchanted by her charm that he failed to recognize her shortcomings. She was the most beautiful creature that he had ever laid his eyes on. And hear this last part. And he felt life without her would be worthless. Would be worthless. And I want to suggest to you that not only did Jacob struggle with the physical idol of romance and sexuality, but I think our culture very much so struggles with this idol. You know, we have our Jacobs today. We have our Jacobs today. This is the guy, the teenager or the young man or maybe even the grown man who is what the teenagers call a player. At least that's what they called it back when I was a teenager. Forgive me if I'm off. But he is the guy who messes with girls' emotions. He is the guy who is after one thing and one thing alone. He hooks up with them. He gets into a relationship with them. He gets what he wants from this girl and then that's it. The game is over and he dumps her. We have our Jacobs today. This might be the girl who struggles with being promiscuous. She uses intimacy with her would-be boyfriend uh, to make her feel valuable, to make her feel like life is worth living. We have our Jacobs today, too. 
This may be the young man who struggles or maybe doesn't even care that he's addicted to porn. And so he's on the internet, he's there at school, he's there by himself, and he has a mental harem, if you will, of Rachel's. And he struggles, he is enslaved <laughs> to the physical idol of romance. Uh, we have our Jacobs today. This may be the married woman, and maybe she doesn't struggle with certain things on the internet, but she enjoys romance novels, and she plays in her mind the things that are happening in the romance novels, except she does not put her husband in that place, but somebody else, and she has a dream world, and though she's not having any kind of physical activity, she too is enslaved with the idol of physical romance. We have our Jacobs today. This may be the teenager who, like Jacob, was willing to overlook obvious lack of character flaws. This may be the young woman or the young man who looks at a potential uh, boyfriend or girlfriend and says, they're very attractive. (laughs) I like the way she looks. I like the way he looks. And I don't particularly care uh, that he's not a Christian. I don't particularly care that he doesn't hold the morals that I do. In fact, maybe I like the fact that my mom and dad don't like him. Uh, But I'm attracted to this guy solely on the basis of his looks and his reputation. Um, And like Jacob, overlooks a obvious lack of character. We have our Jacobs today too. And so we've seen the first part, Jacob struggling what, with what I would call the physical idol of romance. But that's not it. There's another side to this coin, and this is found in the story of Leah. So let's read this together in Leah's account. And we read it in verses 31 through 35. Leah, I would suggest, struggles with the relational side of the idol of romance. Verses 31 through 35. says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has now seen my misery, and listen to this, surely my husband will love me now. 33, she conceived again, and because she, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So his name was Levi, which means attached. I'm going to stop there. She conceives one more son, but we're going to read that in a little bit because I think it's a turning point in Leah's life. But imagine with me just for a second. Let's put our uh, thinking caps on and let's put ourselves in Leah's shoes. Because in my opinion, I think she is the victim, for the most part, in this story. She is done wrong. And so think about, put yourself in in Leah's shoes and think about what it must have been like growing up where she did. Um, The text makes clear that she was less attractive than her sister. She being the older, usually getting more prominence, but she did not get the attention. She did not draw the eyes of the suitors uh, because her younger sister always overshadowed her. I don't know if you've ever been in that scenario, being the sibling who overshadows the other or being the one who is getting overshadowed. Uh, it's a hard thing to live in the shadows of a sibling. And uh, it seems almost inevitable that Leah lived in the 
shadow of the beauty of her younger sister. Put yourself in her shoes. Think about it. She's the oldest one. She should get married first. Her younger sister can't get married until she does. And the days go by and the years go by. And maybe uh, her, her father Laban is working to do that. But it hasn't happened yet. Every maybe potential suitor that has come by. Maybe Laban was unwilling to take maybe such a minuscule offer for his daughter. Think about how that must affect you. Think about feeling the pressure. You know that your dad can get a large sum of money if your younger sister were just be married and you are the one who is keeping him from doing that. Uh, it had to be very tough uh, living in Leah's shoes. And then it gets worse, right? Because your father, and I don't know exactly how it happened, but your father comes up with this plan. There's a guy who shows up. He's your relative. He is interested in your younger sister. And so your father comes to you, and he maybe says these words. You want to get married? You want to have a relationship? You want romance? Is that what you want? Well, here's a way that it can happen for you. This is what we're going to do. And he comes up with this scheming plan to switch the brides in the middle of the night. If you want to know how that can happen, it could happen. Talk to me later. That's kind of besides the point. It does happen. Jacob is deceived. And Leah, uh, whether forced or, or willingly, goes along with this plan to get the old switcheroo. Imagine walking into the bridal chamber knowing that the man who is going to hold you doesn't want you. <laughs> He thinks that you are his sister. Imagine waking up in the morning and Jacob looking and saying, you are not Rachel. Um, she, she had it tough. And so what does she do? What does she do? How does she, how does she cope with it? What does she want most in life? It seems like the author of the text is showing us that Jacob, at least at that point, wanted Rachel the most. He wanted Rachel the most in life and he was willing to do all sorts of things to get her. But what about Leah? I mean, what did she want? What was her consolation? I mean, what would you do? How would you get love? How, what would you do? Well, what Leah did is the first observation that I want to make. And that is that, uh, she tried to win her husband's love through having children. That seems very evident in the text. Did you notice what she named her sons? They're all Hebrew word plays. She names the child after what she uh, is experiencing through that child. And we won't go through each of the names, but what you'll discover is that if you look at the first three names, she's naming her kids, and they're all in reference to her hope that because she has that baby boy, her husband will love her. Do you notice that? They're all about Jacob. She's naming her boys all about her desire to have Jacob just love her. Just love her. And, and, and it's hard to blame her. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says this of, of Leah. Leah had a hollow in her heart, every bit as big as the hollow in Jacob's heart. She did to Jacob... She did to Jacob what Jacob had done to Rachel. That is, she set her heart's hope on getting Jacob's love. So number one, she tried to win her affection, her love, her relational idol of romance through having kids. The second thing that I want us to point out is something that I think happens, and it's kind of a, 
it's kind of hard to see, but there's a significant change, change between number three and number four. Now, let's read together again verse 35. And we will learn about the fourth kid that she has and notice the difference in the name. Verse 35. <clears throat> she conceived again. Number four, and when she had given birth to a son, she said, this time, notice the contrast, this time I will praise the Lord, Yahweh. This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, which means praise. And then we have this simple little word, word, sentence that we can gloss over. Then she stopped having children. We find out that she has more children, but for that stage in her life, she stopped having children. This is the second observation I want to make about, about Leah, and, and, it's, and it's this. I think there was something that happened in her between the third and the fourth child because the first three ch- children, she so longed for her husband's love, she named her kids about the fact that she was unloved and how she wanted to be loved by her husband. But the fourth, Jacob is not the object of the name. Did you notice that? The name is not about Jacob. The name is about Yahweh. This time, that is, this time is going to be different than the three. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord. God is the primary reference in naming her fourth one. And so what I would suggest is that before she saw Jacob as her savior, she was in relational hell and she wanted Jacob to save her and Jacob would not. And so this time, she says, God is going to be my Savior. Again, Pastor uh, Bob Deffenbaugh says it extremely well. He says, the pinnacle of Leah's piety was, was that point at which she came to realize that, that to be loved and to be led by God was a far greater thing than to be loved by any man. She was content with the abundant love of God. And so what I think Leah did is she said, I'm going to place my hope and my affections on God instead of my husband, which seemed to be um, an unmet desire. And so I would suggest to you, like we have Jacob's in our culture, we have Leah's in our culture today as well. So number one, this might be uh, the girl or the guy who always has to be in a relationship, who always has to be in a romantic dating relationship because probably deep down they feel empty and worthless um, without it. They do not have uh, God as their primary relational need meter. So do you know a person like this? Don't point fingers, you know, don't nudge. But do you know someone like this? Have you known someone like this, guy or girl? I have known someone like this, and uh, he is a very good friend of mine that I grew up with. And we've had these conversations after the fact, but something that I noticed about him very early on is that he was a guy who always had a girl on his shoulder. Always. Um, and he was decent looking, you know. I mean, he was attractive and stuff. But he wasn't like stud football player or anything of the school. He was like a normal Joe. But he always had a girlfriend. Always had a girlfriend. I mean, literally, like he would break up with one. And there was one time that was like a week or two later, he had a new one on his arm. And I'm like, you know, as the guy who like didn't date in high school, I'm like, can you show me how to do that? <laughs> What's your trick, man? Because I'm just as good looking as you, you know. Um, at least I thought I was. <laughs> um, you know, what's going on? And in retrospect, you know, he, he, he told me, he's like, you know, God, I knew God and I had faith in Jesus Christ, but... My identity was shaped by if I was dating someone or not. 
and I had to have someone with me to feel like I was significant. We have Leah's in our culture today too, and it can be a guy or a girl. This might be the husband who falls into a deep depression, who has suicidal thoughts upon hearing that his wife is displeased with him and thinking about leaving him. And while he certainly should be concerned about that, this goes deeper. It goes to the heart of who he is, his identity as a man being in a relationship. I ran across um, an article on AOL, which is where I get my email. And uh, I don't know if your email provider has this, just little, you know, information, news tidbits. And I kind of look at them just to keep up with the news. And I noticed one that caught my eye, and it was regarding Shania Twain. Uh, Shania Twain, I think, was a Canadian singer, probably familiar with her, very popular, very, very good singer. And uh, there was an article... And uh, I'll give you the short of it. After 14 years, she comes to find out or think that her husband was cheating on her. And so after 14 years, and I think the guy's name was, his nickname was Mutt. Should have known. You know what I mean? (laughs) But uh, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You can name your son Mutt. I don't care. (laughs) But she finds out he's cheating on her. And to make it worse, that he supposedly was cheating on her with her one of her very best friends one of her closest companions, which makes it doubly hard. And, and she did an inter- interview on the Oprah Winfrey show. And uh, on May 3rd, she just said, she, I want to share one quote. <clears throat> when asked about how she initially dealt with it, this is what she said. She said, I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't want to live either. I didn't want to kill myself, but I did not want to live either. And certainly um, the shock of that was was difficult. But I think when we recognize, when we get to the point where without this person in our life, we don't feel like life is worth living, um, that may be an indication that they are uh, serving as an idol for us. Finally, uh, this could be the wife or the husband who crushes their spouse, their husband or wife, with maybe unrealistic expectations, with uh, her or him desiring for that spouse to meet every single emotional need that they may have in a full and a complete sense. Um, and so at this point, uh, we have just a quick minute. And so uh, I've asked my wife to come share a little bit at this point. And so uh, she has my daughter, and my daughter is going to get passed off. <laughs> Hopefully she'll be okay. So I've asked my wife to come, and she's going to share briefly about this last point. Again, I've tried to give you guys glimpses into how these things work um, in our life. And so I want to sh- share briefly, actually, It's my wife who's sharing briefly, although I have my vice list as well, um, about just kind of her struggle um, with this in our marriage, just to flesh it out just a little bit more. And so I get to be the negative. You get to be the negative example. Right. It's okay. Next week, I'll be the negative example. No, you're going to use me again next week, too. Oh, you're right. I am. (laughs) Yeah. And it's negative. Yeah. I think you're a great it's all good. person. <laughs> hey, you know, I... It's, it's all good. Yeah, you guys need to start sharing some of your struggles, too, so I don't have to do this all the time. Right, so I'm going to ask you to... <laughs> <laughs> um, it was interesting because um, we we were met in Dallas and we were at seminary, and um, before we met, you know, I had met my, my girlfriends and made my friends and found out very quickly that I felt very friendless because they spent time with each other, but they never really called me. Um, I was kind of like this outer circle of, and there was the inner core, and then there was me. They never called me, so I was really kind of hurt by that. And met Trey, was in a relationship, got excited about that, and was able to forget the fact that I didn't have any other girlfriends. Um, just, you know, forget it. I don't I care anymore. 
Right. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> we spent all our time together. You know, it was just fun. We're dating, and then we're getting married. And so after we got married, um, talk about shock. All of a sudden, Trey wanted to go hang out with the guys. He wanted to go play basketball with the guys. And it wasn't even like friends. It was like acquaintances that met together at we the seminary basketball. to play basketball, <laughs> you know? Not like quality time with the guys, just fun. And uh, I really struggled. Like, it was really hard for me. I, Deep down, I wanted to be okay. I wanted to be okay with the fact that he needed guy friends. I wanted him to go do his guy thing, but I didn't have any girlfriends. And I would literally break down um, emotionally every time he would leave um, because I could not handle the fact that he had somebody and all I had was him. And um, I really, it was hard. It was really hard to not make him try to be everything for me. And he was like, I can't do it, you know, like there's just this big, what am I supposed to do to help you? I can't be everything. And so I really had to work through that, and God really had to heal me. And nothing changed. I didn't make any more girlfriends, unfortunately. And I kept arguing with God about that. (laughs) But um, God brought me to the point where I was able to allow God to meet these needs or to heal me in a way that I didn't put extra pressure on my husband that he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve everything I was asking him to be for me because he couldn't be everything for me. And so it was a growing process, um, and God brought me through that. And I would like to say I've learned my lesson, and for the most part I think I have. But, um, you know, it's just uh, it was a big aha moment that in my mind, I knew that Trey couldn't be everything for me, but my emotions and who I was longed for that from him. And as much as I tried not to make him be everything and get upset when he wasn't, I was still doing that to him over and over and over again. And so um, that was it. God had to bring me through not relying on him and not putting that extra pressure on him that wasn't supposed to be there anyway that I should have been relying on God for. So, Thanks, honey. Appreciate that. Please clap for her because she was willing to come and be my uh, <clears throat> be my negative example. You know, so I'll be calling you this week, and then maybe you can be my guinea pig next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, what I would suggest is that what Leah Leah had probably a similar experience to what Shelley did. She turned her heart, affections, and ultimate uh, desires towards God, as opposed to her husband. So let's wrap up this morning. What is the answer to the idol of romance? So we've talked about the physical side of the idol of romance, the relational side of the idol of romance. What is the cure? How do we get out of this? Well, I would suggest to you that we follow the pattern of both Leah and Shelley. And that is we uh, turn, number one, to the good news of Jesus Christ. We turn to the relationship that we can have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we have a hint with Leah. What she did is she took her dissatisfaction her dissatisfaction with the idol of romance and she placed it on God and she found out that he in and of himself was satisfying. And that is what I would suggest we do as well. Interestingly enough, what we find out as you continue to read the rest of the story is remember, there was a promised one coming and it was through the lineage of Abraham through particular generations. Well, we find out that the generation, the child the tribe that eventually became a tribe in Israel from which Jesus Christ, the one who Leah's story points us towards, where do you think it came from? Which child? Do you know? Judah. Judah. And this is the one to where I think Leah turned, said, I am dissatisfied with this. I'm going to turn from God. And out of that 
came our Messiah. Out of that came the one who was uh, our bridegroom. The scripture says that he is our bridegroom, that the church is his bride. What a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ, that he loves his bride enough to sacrifice for her, to die for her, to pay for her sins, to reconcile her, and in the biblical language, to wash her clean and to purify her, a holy and pure bride. And that is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is the answer, I believe, to the idol of romance. That is the answer. Again, Tim Keller says this, and we'll be done. And here is the power to overcome our idolatries. To hear the Lord say, I am the true bridegroom. There is only one set of arms that will give you all of your heart's desire and await you at the end of time if you would only turn to me and know that I love you now. And so maybe this morning you are caught in the idol of romance. Maybe you're caught in the idol, the physical idol of romance. Maybe you're caught in the relational idol of romance. I would suggest and implore you that you allow your dissatisfaction that comes from that to lead you to being satisfied in God. And know that Dean Martin is not right. (laughs) The song may be really good, but he's not right. You are not nobody until somebody loves you, but rather you are somebody because Jesus Christ loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the story of Jacob and Leah. Thank you for all the instruction that we can learn from it. Uh, And I pray, Father, for all of us, including myself, as we often idolize romance and relationships, we pray that we would love our spouses well, uh, but not more than you. We pray that we would date people in a way uh, that's holy and righteous and uh, begin to grow in love with them if they're our our spouse-to-be, but we would not do that more than you. I pray for those who are single, and I have been there and done that. And we long for relationship. And while that's a good and holy thing for us to do, I pray, God, that you would reveal to us, uh, those of us who may be single, if that has become an idol in our life, if that has become our savior, if this potential spouse or date has become that which we long for, that which will give us significance and meaning more than you. And so, Father, rid us of our idolatries. Help us to turn to your Son, Jesus Christ, and find ultimate satisfaction and joy and purpose in the relationship that we were made for. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. I want to remind you about the art of marriage coming up. You can sign up in the back. See you next week. Thanks.